Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up this hour, a focus on national public health policy and the COVID-19 vaccines. First of all, to develop a coordinated plan with the state for the distribution of the vaccine, because we are seeing a lot of confusion. Former Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Dr. Lewis Sullivan, joins me, as well as others. But first, our daily update on the coronavirus pandemic here in Georgia. A statement from Georgia Governor Brian Kemp's office cites more than 400,000 seniors have been vaccinated for COVID-19. Now, we know Georgians who are 65 and older are currently eligible to receive a vaccine from their local provider. In the statement, Governor Kemp noted, quote, demand for the vaccine still vastly outweighs supply. He added, I continue to ask all Georgians to wear a mask, practice social distancing and follow public health guidance as we get shots in arms as safely and as quickly as possible. Close quote. Meanwhile, according to the state's new vaccine dashboard, at the time of this broadcast, more than 836,000 have been vaccinated here in the state. Still, the number of newly confirmed cases also continues to rise. In total, 737,205 cases have been confirmed in Georgia. In addition, 49,608 people have been hospitalized, and of those, 8,331 were ICU admissions. And to date, 12,280 Georgians have died due to the virus. And as always, this is according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, before the official change in administrations, a recommendation from the CDC urged states to offer the COVID-19 vaccines to those 65 years and older and those under 65 who have comorbidities that increase their risk of severe COVID-19. So while states, including Georgia, are reporting coronavirus vaccine shortages, the Biden administration is promising the vaccines are coming. As to when? Well, that depends on the vaccine makers. There's a lot more to discuss as to which population should be top priority for inoculation. Dr. Lewis Sullivan holds many distinctions. First, the secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services during President George H.W. Bush's administration and the founding dean and director of the medical education program at the Morehouse School of Medicine. And that was back in 1975. And also former PBA board chair emeritus, I believe. Correct. That's correct. Nice to be with you. Thank you so much, Dr. Sullivan. Let's begin here. Because if there's any area you certainly are an expert in, it's about national health policies. And although the Biden administration is just really a week in now in overseeing this vaccine distribution, what's going to be key in all of this, you feel, to get these vaccines to the states? What's going to be key? There are a number of things, but I would cite three as at the very top. 
first of all, to develop a coordinated plan with the states for the distribution of the vaccine, because we are seeing a lot of confusion uh, and inefficiencies in the system. So the vaccine that is being produced, only about half of those doses presently are getting to people in, in people's arms mm-hmm. in a very timely way. So that needs to happen. Secondly, uh, the uh, amount of vaccines produced needs to be increased. And I'm pleased that President Biden has already announced uh, an increased order for 200 million more doses of vaccine. So that'll be a total of 600 million doses. And since the vaccine requires two shots, that means enough vaccine will be produced for 300 million people, almost by entire uh, population. Mm. But the third thing that needs to be done, which is equally important, is to educate uh, the public about the vaccines because there is confusion and, in some instances, uh, lack of trust in the vaccine. And that's particularly seen in our African-American and Latino and Native American populations. So the vaccine, I would uh, say to everyone, is safe. Uh, It is an excellent vaccine that uh, works very well with 95% efficiency, uh, and it has been developed with the highest of scientific and ethical standards. So my position is to urge everyone to have the opportunity to take the vaccine because this virus is wrecking havoc on the health and the lives of our citizens. You received the vaccine. You were among some other civil rights icons just a few weeks ago. And we know that among that group was, of course, Henry Aaron, our baseball legend, civil rights legend, Atlanta's beloved son. Immediately following his death, Dr. Sullivan, you know, you know media, not news media, but social media, and folks trying to tie Mr. Aaron's death to the vaccination. What do you want folks to know through your lens about that? Well, yes, what I would say to everyone that uh, uh, is concerned about this, there is no relation to Hank Aaron's death uh, and uh, the vaccine that, that he took. Uh, I was there. I was right next to him receiving the same vaccine. My wife was there. Uh, His wife was there. Andy Young and his wife was there. And a number of other people. We all received the vaccine, and we did very well. No one had any adverse reaction to it. And this is an unfortunate coincidence. Certainly, we all regret uh, Hank's passing, but uh, this really had nothing to do with the vaccine that he, he had received. Uh, and one of the infectious disease specialists in the country uh, made a reference I thought was quite apt, and that is this. I'm sure that Hank rode in an automobile on the same day that he took that uh, vaccine. Uh, So it would be just as logical for someone to say that because he rode in an automobile on that day, uh, he really, uh, his death was related to that. That's totally untrue. There's no relationship uh, between that. Uh, So I really want to urge everyone to take the vaccine. Uh, I've taken it. I urge everyone to take it. We have a pandemic uh, going through the country. More than 400,000 Americans have died. Mm-hmm. More will, will die and a number of are sick. The only way we can counter this is to take the vaccine as well as practice social distancing, wear masks, and wash your hands. So this we can conquer, but we have to take the vaccine if we're going to be protected. Let's talk about when those vaccines do arrive. And we know the importance, as I read coming into this segment, for those 65 
years and older. And then also there's now talk that perhaps teachers, educators, you know, because so many districts now they are allowing in-class instruction. What are your thoughts on that? Should there be a revamping of the priority groups, first responders, obviously, and healthcare workers. Do you think that teachers should be prioritized into that group as well, Dr. Sullivan? Well, I would certainly add teachers to the uh, priorities. I, I would not give them the same level of urgency as uh, the first responders, that is, policemen, firemen, and ambulance workers, health workers. But because teachers are in contact with so many children uh, in the schools every day, they should uh, be on, on the list. Uh, but uh, the reason I would not rate them as high mm-hmm. uh, is as follows. Studies have shown thus far that the rate of transmission uh, in schools is not as high as people had anticipated that it might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's really the level of uh, uh, risk is not, is not as high. But uh, because teachers are working with a large number of people, youngsters in our schools, they certainly should be on the list of priorities. But I would uh, rank them slightly lower uh, than the first responders. But certainly they should get the vaccine. And as we have increased doses of the vaccine available, uh, some of these bottlenecks will be uh, resolved. So we're hoping that we get more vaccine as quickly as possible. You mentioned just a while ago what you would recommend being key in all of this. And you mentioned a more coordinated plan, perhaps devised by the government, because each state obviously has a different distribution plan. And you look at a state like Georgia, which is going to be different than Texas or different from Montana. In terms of those specific populations, black Americans, Native Americans, the Hispanic and Latino communities, the rural communities, you also think there should be a federal devised plan that states should follow for specific populations as well? Well, the federal government can uh, work uh, more closely with the states. What has happened um, uh, up until uh, the new administration has come in has been the federal government uh, would produce the vaccine purchase the vaccine, mm-hmm. and send it to the states. But the states frequently did not have sufficient information in advance that the vaccines uh, were en route, that they were coming, when they would arrive, how many doses that there would be. Uh, so uh, what needs to happen is more information uh, in advance should be given to the states so they can plan. Because to get the vaccine administered, you have to have personnel, mm-hmm. you have to have the facilities ready, you have to have the equipment, the syringes, uh, and the antiseptics, et cetera. So there has been this lack of coordination uh, so that we need to be sure that when the vaccine uh, does arrive, uh, the people are there ready to administer it. Uh, the recipients of the vaccine have been notified because there have been too many instances of appointments having been, been made <laughs> that had to be canceled because the people arrived uh, to be vaccinated but the vaccine had not arrived. So that's what I mean when I uh, say that there has to be much more coordination. There should be a seamless uh, uh, integration between the federal activities Mm -hmm. and the state activities. That really had not uh, happened. The states had been left uh, pretty much uh, on their own, uh, and that's not the best way to see that a massive undertaking such as having 330 million people receiving vaccines you need to have a coordinated plan uh, from the federal government to the state, local and county government, uh, and the rest of the health system. And 
as we wrap up, I want to ask you this question because this is also near to you, you know, and that is what role? We know that institutions like the Morehouse School of Medicine have been very, very critical in this, but what role do you think that in general uh, medical institutions, colleges, and universities can play in helping to administer these vaccines and be a distribution site as well? Well, colleges, universities, medical schools can play, and many of them, including Morehouse School of Medicine, are playing a key role. The Morehouse School of Medicine is working uh, with federal support uh, to distribute the vaccine, but also to educate the community about the safety of the vaccines and to answer questions uh, of the public so that any confusion can be cleared up the trust can be developed uh, in the safety of the vaccine and the effectiveness of the vaccine. So uh, these institutions can play a role. And we have other institutions uh, as well. Uh, I'm involved with a group that is working with black ministers uh, in cities around the country, mm-hmm. uh, including Detroit, New York, Newark, Washington, D.C., and Atlanta. And that number is growing because the churches are frequently sites for distribution of the vaccines. They are trusted sites uh, that are familiar to the community. Those in similar institutions can be utilized as vaccine distribution sites and educational sites. So this is a massive undertaking, but it can be done, done well with better coordination. Former U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Secretary Dr. Lewis Sullivan and also founding dean of the Morehouse School of Medicine. Dr. Sullivan, always good to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for all the information you just provided. Well, Rose, thank you, and you and your listeners have a good day. You too now. Be safe. Thank you. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Ambassador Andrew Young, Dr. Lewis W. Sullivan, Zenona Clayton, and the late Hank Aaron, pioneers, obviously, in civil rights and for Dr. Sullivan medicine. And recently, they all received COVID-19 vaccinations at the Morehouse School of Medicine. The event was held not just for their own well-being, but to also encourage black America to get immunized. My next conversation took place right before it was announced that Hank Aaron had died. And since then, a statement from the Morehouse School of Medicine reads in part, quote, Mr. Aaron was a public health advocate and worked with us to help bridge the health equity gap in Atlanta and around the world. His passing was not related to the vaccine, nor did he experience any side effects from the vaccine. He passed away peacefully in his sleep. So now we'll pick up the conversation with the president and dean of the Morehouse School of Medicine, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. Madam President, as always, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's always my pleasure. Here we are once again, and at the time of this conversation, The nation has confirmed more than 24 million cases of this virus. Now more than 400,000 deaths with a projection of a half million in a few weeks. Uh, What do you make of all this? Did you ever imagine a year ago that this nation would reach those numbers? You know, Rose, I have to say uh, it saddens me for you to be able to give those numbers and for us to know that they're accurate. And we had a, some insight that we were moving along this pathway. If you read or, or follow uh, what Johns Hopkins is putting out, if you follow up what Chris is putting out at IHE, I think it's IHEE, uh, if you follow those numbers, you know that this could happen. 
And they gave us models that if we did the wash your hands, wear your mask, watch your distance, how we could mitigate some of the virus mm. uh, impact and, and some of the cases. And then we are now starting to have modeling with the vaccines. Mm -hmm. So did I think we could get here? Yes, because we do know how infectious this virus is. Was I hoping that we would not get here? I was hopeful, but here we are. The key thing is what do we do now mm -hmm. such that we're not having this conversation six weeks or six months from now and are not seeing a downward trend uh, in deaths, hospitalization, and eventually in cases. And then just last week we learned Georgia was now fourth in the nation with hospitalizations, that coming from a federal report. It said, quote, Georgia is in full pandemic resurgence and will experience continued increases in new COVID hospital admissions and fatalities that coming from a White House coronavirus task force. So when you look at Georgia, because now we're bringing this close to home, but you have to look at what maybe the state could have done better in terms of preparing for this and not to get you all caught up in politics, but these numbers that Georgia has now, some of them could have been prevented. Do you believe that? I believe that not just Georgia, but the entire nation could have done a better job. Now, in all fairness to our leadership, early on when um, everything broke loose in March and April, um, I was on task force with the governor's people mm -hmm. and we were talking about how do we increase testing? And they rolled out a plan with the, um, with the Augusta University and I think that that helped with some of the testing, but I still think that there are opportunities to improve testing. Mm -hmm. I have been in multiple conversations with uh, Dr. Toomey, and she has been very receptive to our ideas and open. I think that one of the things that happened in all fairness to everyone, Rose, is that the messages that were coming from the leadership at the top mm -hmm. were so mixed. And I do not think it was appropriate and, and still don't think it's appropriate for every state to try to develop their own strategy. Mm -hmm. There are clearly federal resources that can be garnered and, and, and shaped together that we can have a national strategy for testing and a national strategy for vaccinations. And what we've been working on and have rolled out in our, as where we can, is a resource aligned strategy. And why do I call it resource aligned? Because every community has a different set of resources mm -hmm. and we need to use the assets in those communities because those assets are tied to trust and relationships and uh, a foundation that has been forged over many, many years, such that when I call someone and say, oh, you need to get tested, mm -hmm. that's different than the secretary of HHS calling and saying you need to be tested. Mm -hmm. Or I'm willing to put this vaccine in my arm. That's different than them seeing someone else who they're not familiar with put it in their arm. And so those relationships, those foundations of trust that we've built over the years matter. And so I think that there is intentionality mm -hmm. with our leadership to get this right. And we're willing to work with them and help in any way we can at Morehouse School of Medicine. 
And speaking of trust, I remember when we had a conversation, I think back in September, and correct me, either you are still or you were on the NIH panels to review some of the clinical trials for COVID-19, correct? Correct. So, yes. So I, I continue. Our work has decreased because we now had the two vaccines that mm-hmm. have come and and uh, we believe AstraZeneca will be next and then hopefully Johnson and Johnson. But what our focus has so sh- sort of shifted, we really shifted our focus into ensuring that the materials that are being put out about the vaccines is accurate and that is culturally and linguistically appropriate for a vast and diverse community. You told me that you w- wanted to make sure that it would everything would be fully explained and in language yes. that could be understood, whether we're talking about risk and, and benefits, but all of that. When it comes to science and evidence, as we talk about this vaccine, mm-hmm. when it comes to science and evidence, is that enough? I'm going to get real for a moment, like we in your living room. Okay. Is that okay. enough? Is that enough in the campaign to encourage more blacks to get the vaccine? Now, as you said, since we're in my living room, and we talking. Surely, that's not enough. Okay, and I can probably break down science uh, to a level that anybody can understand it, and that won't be enough. That won't be enough based on this historical context that we've lived in of the mistrust that we've had between the black community, the Latinx community and the health system. And people are experiencing this every day. So that even beyond COVID, right? Mm -hmm. People are experiencing this when they're trying to get in to see a doctor about their diabetes and a hypertension, or or they are pregnant and they think the doctor's not listening to them. So we have a whole history of this. And what we tried to do, Rose, when I say we, I'm talking about the four historical black medical schools, Mm -hmm. the National Urban League, the Black uh, Coalition Against COVID, uh, blackdoctors.org. What we have been trying to do is to have a series of national town hall meetings where we brought the premier scientists, and I say premier only in the sense of they were the ones who have been on the forefront of the vaccine development. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Marks. Dr. Mejanay, Dr. Uh, Nunez Smith, who is now with the Biden transition team, or the Biden-Harris team. Now, they're not transitioning anymore, (laughs) thank goodness. Um, And so we've had those persons on, and we've had people at the NIH on. We've had the scientist, Dr. Uh, Dr. Corbett, we've had her on. And we had those people on to talk about the science. And then we've had people like myself and community leaders and Dr. Calvin Butts, and other persons to say, okay, community, you've heard the science, ask us any question about it. Mm -hmm. Now we said, we got a disease you all that is disproportionately impacting black and brown people. And it's not because we black and brown. It is because the circumstances which we find ourselves, we are these essential workers. We are the people who live in multi-generational homes. Mm -hmm. We are the ones who cannot socially distance. We are doing these essential jobs that keep our infrastructure of this country working. You are going to have an increased risk just by exposure. Now you can do something about it along with the health prevention strategy. And folks like you and the other medical institutions, you all have said, and I think I read a quote from you, you said, I would not recommend this vaccine if I did not believe that it was safe. And that is the message that you all 
are getting out. I'm not sure the data yet really reveals in terms of demographics, you know, based on race, who is taking the vaccine. But how would you assess, is the message working, though? Are y'all reaching, especially those who are 65 and older? So we are we are making some progress, Rose, mm-hmm. and I'm excited about it. So let me tell you what I'm measuring it by. Okay. First of all, we've had seven town hall meetings, and we have three to 5,000 people on those town hall meetings. And we usually do them in the evening. And then, Rose, what we've had is about 20,000 people afterwards to look at them. So I we know that that's working. People are getting the message. We've also, you know, we have a SEAL grant, which is the grant that we got for the, for the state of Georgia that was given out by the NIH to increase communication in the state of Georgia. We've been doing town halls and local events, very well attended. I speak on numerous occasions about this and so do other people. So we know those messages are getting out there. And what we, when we start to now look at the surveys though, so when we first started the surveys in March and April, 60 to 70% of people said they wouldn't take the vaccine. Mm-hmm. That's now down to around 30 to 40%. Mm-hmm. So this vaccine hesitancy is moving to vaccine acceptance. And when you talked about, you opened up the segment talking about that we did a visual display mm-hmm. of Ambassador Young, okay, Lewis Sullivan, um, Clayton. other people, yeah. Nona Clayton, all those people getting their vaccine. First of all, they were all 65 and older. Mm-hmm. So they, were, they met the qualification. They met the qualification in the phase 1A. But we wanted to do that so that people would see we would not put something in the arms of our heroes that we did not think was safe. Mm. And we need to protect them. That's part of what we do to continue our legacy. We have to protect ourselves and we have to protect those who have paved the way for us. They truly are our treasures. But now, let me ask you this, um, as a scientist, as a physician, are you? do you have concerns about how effective these vaccines that have already been approved, how they will work now? Because we hear not one, but another coronavirus variant. Do you have some concerns with this new variant? So, so as a scientist, and, and, and for the limited amount that I know about virology, this is what viruses do. Viruses mutate and they try to outsmart you. And so when you are developing a vaccine, you want to be one step ahead or actually three steps ahead of what you think the virus is going to do. This is why we do research, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have the, 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 the vaccine is targeted against that little spike protein that everybody sees, right? Mm-hmm. And what we have been able to show thus far in the early looking at these variants is that there's still protection. But this is something that's going to be ongoing. This is no real different than what we do with the flu vaccine, Rose. We make the flu vaccine 12 to 18 months probably ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And it's predicting what that flu vaccine is going to have done over that period of time. <clears throat> based on the environmental circumstances. Mm. This co- this uh, coronavirus is, is smart 
I don't think it's smarter than us, though. <laughs> and so what I say to people is that when people ask you to sign up for a clinical trial, like Morehouse School of Medicine, we have a vaccine trial going on right now with another uh, candidate vaccine with Novavax. We ask people to go online and sign up. Why should you do that? Because we need to have knowledge about unanticipated side effects and that it's going to work in a diverse group of people. And if I tell somebody who's under the age of 30, let me say something to you if you're under the age of 30. You way down on the list of being eligible to get the <laughs> vaccine. You way down on the list. Yeah. I, if I was you, I would go sign up to be on a clinical trial. And why would I do that, you all? Because with Moderna and Pfizer, for those people who were in those clinical trials, they are now being unblinded. Okay, so they were in the trial for about 60 days. <clears throat> they are now being unblinded. If they are on placebo, if they got placebo, guess what they're, they're, what's happening to them that day mm-hmm. when they get unblinded? They're getting the, the vaccine. vaccine. So mm-hmm. you have a chance to jump the line fairly because you have done your service. You participated in a trial. You added to the scientific knowledge and you will be rewarded. While we know it's important to focus on obviously saving lives, the vaccine, mitigating the spread, where do we go from here? What has this nation learned about its approach and about public health policy in general? What are the lessons learned here? First of all, I would say that this COVID-19 pandemic, as, as I've said many times, Rose, it pulled the curtain down. It didn't just allow people to look behind the curtain. It snatched the curtain down so that people see the health disparities and the health inequities in this country. And they saw and they are seeing that it's not about just your race or ethnicity. It is about the social determinants of health that have led to this chronicity of the health disparities. And when people are starting behind the eight ball and the eight ball gets thrown at them, you know that they're gonna have a worse outcome. And that's exactly what we're seeing. We're also seeing how invaluable leadership is and transparency and telling the truth. And when you don't know, say you don't know, but bring around the table diverse thinkers, people who've had diverse experience, so they can add to the richness of the solution of solving the problem. What I say to your listeners, to our listeners, who are many people of our community, you must first continue to wash your hands, watch your distance, wear your mask. And then I've added a P on this. Be patient. And when your turn comes, get the vaccine. The vaccine is another tool in our toolkit for defeating this virus. And I ask them to watch as we get more and more people vaccinated, you're going to see the death rate start to go down. Then you're gonna see hospitalization rates start to go down. Then eventually we will see cases start to go down. You must do your part. The other thing that I would say to them is be a partner in your community. 
be a partner with the research scientist. If someone calls you and asks you to think about being on a clinical trial, get more information, find out about it. Think about enrolling in a clinical trial, whether it's a therapeutic trial, whether you have had COVID and someone is asking you to donate your plasma so we can do convalescent plasma treatments or we can create monoclonal antibodies, participate in that. If someone asks you, if you haven't had COVID-19, you want to be a member of a uh, of COVID-19 trial, sign up for it. You all, this is our responsibility to our community and to ourselves. We're going to post a link to a love letter to Black Americans from the Black Coalition Against COVID-19, which you are part of. And it, I'm just going to read the first few lines. It says, Dear Black America, we love you. We affirm that Black lives matter, and as Black health professionals, we have a higher calling to stand for racial justice and to fight for health equity. That's right. I think that line in this. That's what it's about, Rose. That's what it's about. We are empowered to save ourselves. I always tell people we are the ones that we have been waiting for. There is nobody else, and we can do this. So let's band together to make it happen. And finally, finally, how are y'all doing at the Morehouse School of Medicine? We are doing well. Uh, you know, we've been trying to do these vaccination Saturdays. We've been vaccinating about 500 people every Saturday. Um, we're going to do that for the next two Saturdays. The challenge is, Rose, we don't have enough vaccine. Mm-hmm. And if we got more vaccine, uh, we opened up a, a, a satellite site at Spelman the other day. We'll open up more sites. And because I've got all of our medical students who are trained and certified to do vaccinations, we're building a workforce. We are ready to serve. We are ready to serve. Any idea when you will get more doses? Well, the governor said that he is definitely requesting more doses. We're in conversation every week with the Department of Public Health and Commissioner Toon and her team asking them for more vaccine. Uh, Grady has been a great partner. Grady actually partnered with us on the uh, when we get did the civil rights leaders because we hadn't gotten our our doses. But John Hopper, the CEO, and I thought it was so important that we continue to have touch points of, of uh, with our community. President and Dean of the Morehouse School of Medicine right here in Atlanta, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice, as always, thank you for taking the time and thank you for what you all do for the community. It's very important. Thank you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U.
And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. In his first press conference since the inauguration, President Joe Biden says he expects the U.S. will be able to give nearly 1.5 million COVID-19 vaccinations a day. We are optimistic that we will have enough vaccine and in very short order, we, we as you know, we came in office without knowledge of how much vaccine was being held in abeyance or available. Now that we're here, we've been around a week or so, we now have that. And we've gotten commitments from some of the producers that they will, in fact, produce more vaccine in a relatively short period of time and then continue that down the road. Meanwhile, every state is responsible for its vaccine distribution plan. Now, here in Georgia, those eligible for the vaccine, well, that will be administered through phases. And there's something else, though. Georgia was recently ranked worst in the nation for COVID vaccination rates. Now, the state is allowing health systems to begin to vaccinate patients 65 and older. So what's that process like? And some other questions we want to ask. I'm joined now by Dr. Jane Morgan, an Atlanta-based cardiologist and the clinical director of the COVID task force at Piedmont Healthcare. Dr. Morgan, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Hi, Rose. Thanks for having me. Good to speak with you again. Yeah, nice to talk with you again. Let's begin with this. What do you make of President Biden and his optimism of administering 1.5 million COVID-19 vaccines in a day, someday? Is that a realistic goal, you think? I, I certainly hope so. I mean, we are so far behind this curve. Here we are 10 months into the pandemic. Certainly, um, you know, without argument, we're worse off now than we were at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, we are, you know, uh, approaching over 400,000 deaths, more than we've seen even in World War II. Mm -hmm. This is clearly, clearly an emergency, which is why we have emergency use authorizations of these two messenger RNA vaccines. And so I hope that we can get 1.5 million doses in, because one thing we have to think about with both Pfizer and Moderna, that we have to have that amount Mm -hmm. because each person will require two doses. So even one and a half million doses, while um, um, admirable and aggressive, probably still isn't fast enough when you think about each person is consuming two of these. Mm -hmm. Now, some will say it's not even worth going back and and obviously recognizing or acknowledging that the Trump administration did not tell the truth about the vaccination. So in moving forward, but as in your assessment of the national plan and even the state's vaccination plan, if you want to get into that, um, we really can't do anything if you don't have the vaccines, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, vaccines don't save people. Vaccinations do. Mm -hmm. So we have got to vaccinate people, which means not just the supply chain. How do we understand the roadblocks to the messaging what is making people reticent Mm -hmm. or concerned or hesitant all of that really ideally should have rolled out ahead of the vaccine preparing our population preparing our community because it appears that it came very quickly and suddenly and people have a lot of questions Mm -hmm. and so i think that has been a significant barrier not only for communities that are black and brown but for healthcare workers as well we're seeing that 
when you look at the state's vaccination plan, which will be in phases, and obviously you want to start with those frontline workers and perhaps right. those uh, long, long-term long care facility residents and those that work with those people um, in that population, rather, that that's a, you, you agree that's a, a good first phase for that population, particularly with our first responders and healthcare personnel. Absolutely. These are the people who are putting their lives at risk every day to continue to fight this pandemic. And not only are they putting their lives at risk, they're risking the lives of their families as well. Don't forget, they go home somewhere every day. Many stories of physicians, especially uh, disrobing in the garage, sleeping in the basement, having absolutely no contact with their families out of fear of what they may be bringing home with them. Many, many, many sacrifices. So absolutely, these should be the first people as we move into this third phase. Actually, we're in the third phase of this pandemic, which has been the worst one yet Mm -hmm. with regard to volume and mortality. So absolutely, we have to protect and prepare our frontline workers because they are the ones, you know, in the in the trenches doing the grunt work and taking these risks. As director of the COVID task force for Piedmont Healthcare, what will you oversee? So what we're looking at now is trying to understand our relationship with the community, certainly the the black and brown community, Mm -hmm. how we might serve them better, how we might partner better, um, how we might uh, be a, a better segue, how we might improve the bonds of trust such that Piedmont can be considered um, and revered as a, you know, a real health institution where people can come and understand that no matter where they are from what walks of life, um, they can trust uh, that system. And we're using this as an opportunity to do that, to bridge those gaps, to work on communication and doing that via the COVID platform because there's been so much hesitancy, so much distrust not only of healthcare systems in general, but research, the government. And here we are with COVID vaccines where all, where all three of those collide. Mm-hmm. So we certainly have uh, a challenge in front of us. And, and that's where, you know, Piedmont is committed to improving um, that relationship in these diverse communities. I want to get your thoughts on this, because according to the KFF COVID-19 vaccine monitor survey, two thirds of adults, Say they are confident that the vaccine in the U.S. will be distributed fairly. However, about half of black adults say they are not too or not at all confident that the vaccine distribution efforts are taking into account the needs of black people. What do you make of that? Yeah, so so not surprising. We certainly uh, live within a, a social construct um, that is biased. Um, We understand that. We understand what it's like to have to navigate to Americas. And so whether that's true or not, that certainly is an understandable perception and fear, um, again, because of the lack of trust of the system. We don't feel that the system will actually look out for us or value our lives equitably to other lives. So this is inherent in the social construct, you know, of America. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly it, it, it falls over into the healthcare system. And so um, I think those sorts of statements and those perceptions should not be surprising at all. And among Hispanic adults, it was just 38% somewhat confident 
um, 15% very confident, 14% not at all confident, and about 30% not too confident. So when you talk about black and brown communities and the confidence level they have in just the vaccine distribution being of an equitable, you know, pathway for folks to get the vaccine, then what needs to happen from a policy standpoint? If you were advising right. the Biden administration or even here in Georgia, what would you tell them? Mm-hmm. You know, so so every culture requires a different approach. Every culture responds differently and every culture has um, different aspects to it that need to be understood. And if you look at uh, the Hispanic community, multiple arrays of different people fall into that Hispanic community. And Mm -hmm. even within that community, they are not all the same. So those kinds of things need to be understood at a grassroots level, including whether there um, are, are language barriers that make people very suspicious and, 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 and you tend to be more isolated mm-hmm. and what self-protected because it's hard for you to understand and you're more easily misled. So we have to begin to understand that. I think if I were advising the Biden Harris um, um, administration, you know, the messaging is going to be important, a campaign of messaging for all communities that needs to be specific to to various communities, a campaign um, identifying uh, the safety of the vaccine. We certainly need to have science first Mm -hmm. and science needs to be trusted with these facts. And then I think, um, you know, the vaccine rollout needs to probably have a little bit more federal regulation. Is that the state levels? Every state is doing it differently. Different states get different amounts. It's distributed to the hospitals. The hospitals have, you know, it's just all over the place. Mm. The same as the PPE, where we really don't have federal regulations and federal guidelines, and everyone is working to do their absolute best with what they have within the middle of a pandemic. And considering every state is different, you look at states that have a large rural population and I've hear very little about you know a plan as it relates to native the Native American community so there's a lot to consider there Dr. Morgan I want to get your thoughts on this too because if we are talking about the groups that fit into the at risk and some folks have said right. well what about our folks who might have physical disabilities mm-hmm. you know is right. it fair to say that well we're starting with people who are 65 and older but you could be 22 and have a have a severe medical condition, but you're still asked to, you know, you're asked to wait because you're in a different population, primarily because of your age. Yeah. I mean, how do you it's a tough task. How do you filter out who should be first once we get past, you know, first responders and mm-hmm. folks like that? Because some people think teachers should be in that first responders frontline group. And a lot of folks feel that way. Excellent point, I think. Excellent point. And what I will say is when we get to 1A, even though the 1A is called first responders, it envelopes in people with developmental disabilities, mental handicaps. So those, so people who are vulnerable, regardless of the age. And so those people should be able to access the vaccine in this 1A category that's called first responders, but it envelopes in others as well. The voice you hear is Dr. Jane Morgan, Atlanta-based cardiologist and the clinical director of the COVID task force at Piedmont Healthcare. Have you all been able to vaccinate some of your patients? Oh, absolutely. We're running uh, vaccination clinics for our patients, for our staff. 
Um, I think that's very important uh, that Piedmont do that. And, you know, we have an entire COVID vaccine rollout team that is focused on this. Um, and it, as you can imagine, it, it pulls your resources thinly. Um, in the in the midst of all this, we're actually managing the pandemic. We have, mm -hmm. you know, um, many patients as well as every hospital um, that we're also managing in addition to trying to serve as a depot to distribute vaccines, you know, as equitably and as quickly as we possibly can. In fact, I actually work as a volunteer vaccinator mm -hmm. in some of these clinics because we need all resources to step up and, and do our part. And although you are a cardiologist, you have been primarily focusing on medical research of late as well. I have been my near and dear to my heart. And I think, you know, that's something we need to talk about clinical trials and why black people are not involved in clinical trials and what that means to our community. And when we look at these two Moderna and Pfizer uh, vaccines that are out Pfizer actually did a pretty good job, had 10.3% participation of African-Americans, Pfizer between 9.3 and 9.8. Each trial, uh, Moderna had about 30,000 participants in their phase three, which is their last phase. Pfizer had about 40,000. So when you look at about 70,000 people, and we were about 10% of that, mm -hmm. that's significant. That's about 7,000 of us participated. And even though it doesn't represent the 13.4% of our population, mm -hmm. it actually was pretty good considering we generally make up less than four or 5% of trials because of our suspicion of not being treated well within the research, within the healthcare. So I think we can be confident that the data that was submitted to the FDA in which they granted emergency use authorization for both of these vaccines is relevant mm -hmm. to our population and the Hispanic population as well that was represented in 20% and 26% in both of these trials. You mentioned the suspicion that folks have, and I'll give you another word. Some folks are just hesitant because I know we keep having this conversation about the past with the Tuskegee experiment. And there have been so many other experiments as well here in 2021. And I asked this question to Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice just yesterday with the Morehouse School of Medicine. And I asked her, it's going to take more than just the science and data when you're talking about a campaign to get black and brown folks to not only participate in clinical trials, but take the vaccine it's going to take more than just giving the science and the data. No, absolutely. It's going to be actionable. One of the key things is we need people in real leadership positions who have real seats at the table, who can affect policy, who can represent all peoples, who can provide a different voice and different perspective. That's actually where it starts, such that leadership has some has some voice. We then need to recruit um, physicians. Physicians, black physicians uh, control 80% of all African-American patients in the country. And that's not by coincidence. That's because black people generally select a physician based on where they feel safe. Mm -hmm. Imagine that. We select physicians by safety. And basically what we're saying is who do we trust to value our lives? And so if that's how we select physicians, we have to get these physicians involved as principal investigators, meaning lead physicians of clinical trials. 
because they are controlling most of the patients. Mm -hmm. So no wonder we can't get patients to enroll and sort of move beyond Tuskegee because we really don't have that bridge to do so. And so we actually have a lot of work. It needs to be actionable. You know, really, you don't ever have to talk the talk if you walk the walk. You know, we used to use the term health disparities. Now we've moved to better health outcomes for all populations here. Dr. J. Morgan, as we wrap up, what is your hope where this nation will be a year from now as it relates to the pandemic? Oh, my goodness. I, I certainly hope that we have reached some degree of herd immunity, that we've come together as a nation to support science, to support the beautiful mosaic fabric that makes up our country and not enemies of people who don't look like you. I would like to see the, in, this entire pandemic, which is multi-layered in not just science, but racism, health inequity, I would like to see us well on the way to uh, a different and more promising America with this virus under control that Americans have come together to do what we need to do. And certainly science having a voice and a trusted voice as well. Dr. Jane Morgan, Atlanta-based cardiologist and the clinical director of the COVID task force at Piedmont Healthcare. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Rose. Great seeing you again. Same here. (laughs) Take care now. Bye. That's it for today's edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's show, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. As well as in our podcast, subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.